0: Good morning again. Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28? If you don't have a Bible, uh, let me encourage you to grab one of those under the chairs in front of you. You can find it on page 706. We are rounding the corner of our vision campaign this fall called Growing in Grace. Six Sundays of refocusing as a church what it means to be a renewed biblical community. Week number one, we talked about fellowship. It's a common word, but it needs to be rooted in our shared life with God in Christ vertically, and then only then overflow horizontally within our relationships inside the church. Week number two, we talked about the reality that every one of us is profoundly infected by this sin sickness that alone has cure through gospel healing, through faith in Jesus Christ. To deny our need is to minimize the cure and in some cases is to reject the need for the cure. The healthiest people, we said, are those who know their sin sickness and their need of the healing that Jesus alone offers. Week number three, last Sunday, we noted that GRC is a rich church, rich in gospel abundance. And just like the four lepers discovering the treasures of the Aramean army outside the city of Samaria, how could we not freely share from what God has given us through compassion towards the least and outreach, evangelism, missions, and reaching the lost? This morning we look at Jesus' last words to his disciples. In a nutshell, he tells his inner inner circle, make more of yourselves. It is a surprisingly simple plan that Jesus has to change the world. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, let these last words of Jesus have a a clarity to the same call that you extend to our lives today. We are not 11 apostles, but we are like them, mere men and women. We lack what it takes to change the world, but you promise to be with us always, and we claim that promise in this time, this morning, here, Lord Jesus, for your glory and for our good. Amen. We're going to look at first the biblical mandate and then a biblical model and then more specifically GRC's plan for discipleship. This passage is called the Great Commission. The heading in your Bible probably even says that. And it's well known as this clarion call to missions, to go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. It's absolutely true. It's, it's, a, it's a, a rich part of this Um, passage in Jesus commissioning his disciples. We treated that theme last week when we talked about reaching the least and the lost, but the heart of this passage isn't to go, it isn't to baptize, it isn't to teach. It's to make disciples. And the, the reality that the heart of Jesus' statement is Is in that phrase, which is one word in the original Greek language, is emphasized by the fact that there's only one main verb in that section. Going, baptizing, teaching are the participles, if you enjoy grammar, uh, very few of you do, that are supporting the main verb. Make disciples. How do we do that? Going, baptizing, teaching. They're descriptive, they're supportive. Jesus didn't say, therefore, go and make converts and let them figure out the rest. They'll be fine once you convert them. He didn't say that. Discipleship was at the heart of Jesus' strategy to bring renewal to the world. He invested several years of his life in a a handful of men, which seemed to be an incredibly inefficient strategy for changing the world. You know, if I was Jesus' campaign manager or his agent or, or his chief strategist, I would have said, Jesus, forget the 11 or the 12. For, forget one-on-one counseling sessions. Those aren't the biggest bang for your buck. You're only around for three more years before you die and, uh, and and go back to the Father. We need to book the largest arenas in the world. We need to have on speed dial um, the most influential journalists, all the major networks, bloggers, tweeters, movers and shakers. We need to live stream, um, satellite, cable, Network all around the world to maximize the impact that you can make because you have such a short amount of time. Biggest bang for your buck, Jesus. Instead, the king himself, Scripture tells us, in whom all wisdom resides, chose 12 men to live with, mostly under the radar, mostly in relative obscurity. Yes, he ministered to the crowds. He had people following him at times, but he always... Was interested in retreating with his disciples to be with them. And even more surprisingly than retreating from the crowds, because he could have been um, building a name for himself in the court of public opinion, he could have been building popularity to um, have greater support for his message of the kingdom of heaven coming. Even more surprising than the fact that he withdrew from the crowds to be with his disciples was the reality that so very often and most likely every day he withdrew from his disciples to be with his heavenly Father in personal and intimate prayer. How inefficient can you get? Jesus, there are places to go and people to see, and you're, you're hiding in prayer. You can do that later. Catch up with the Father when you're back in heaven. Jesus was so much more about people and relationships than he was about program and calendar. Why such inefficient investment of the handful of years that he had in public ministry? We could make a mini-series of sermons on that question. But just a couple of thoughts. Why? Because so much of what it means to follow after Jesus, what it means to be his disciple is caught and not taught. It's not about getting the data into your brain and then knowing the do's and don'ts, knowing um, God's expectations, and then executing on it. It has nothing to do with that. And every person's greatest problem we've been talking about over the last several weeks is our sin, which we love to hide from others, especially the internal things that nobody would ever really detect unless we opened up our lives to other people in vulnerable intimacy? How many people really know the envy that grips your heart, the lust, the anxiety, the extent of which at least? Some, some of it comes out in your words, right? But how deeply you fear, how prideful you are, the thoughts that flow through your mind that are filtered so that you speak in a more socially acceptable manner. You can't hide that stuff from the people with whom you live most closely, with whom you share life. And if we need any more reasons why this inefficient investment was so important, Jesus, I'm sure, would agree about this in relation to his disciples. Sin is so very stubborn. We sinners are so very thick-headed. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that Jesus so very often after he, his teaching or after his instruction Um, had this kind of reaction about his disciples. Oh boy, (laughs) this is going to be tougher than I thought. (sighs) Thick-headedness is a symptom of sin sickness that afflicts every one of us. Uh, By the same token, you might wonder why it's so necessary for parents to invest 18 years of the prime of our lives shaping little boys and little girls into mature adults. Don't you think there's a shorter way, more efficient way to kind of produce a, an adult and have them fly the nest? Why would we think that spiritual formation is any easier, requires any less investment? That's costly. By the way, parents, you've heard me say this here and there. Your greatest calling is to disciple your children. Not to entertain them, not to keep them busy, not to chase after every opportunity to build their college resume so they can succeed in life. Your greatest calling is to do everything in your power and through your prayers to shape them into Christ likeness while knowing that the Spirit of God needs to be at work in their hearts. Discipleship is your primary calling if you're a Christian parent. Do you know what you get from a great commission that makes converts and not disciples? You get a church or a bunch of churches that are broad but shallow, have nice, impressive numbers but no depth. And um, those of you who are on our email list, uh, we send out as a team one email a week. Um, In my Thursday pastor's email, I touched on this. That dynamic is one of the reasons, just one, One of the reasons why our very next step is not going to involve church planting as a church. We've planted two churches in our short history. But in my pastoral circles, I see too many churches that place too much value for more than a season at a time on breadth. Another site, another daughter church, another healthy split from one into two, but ignore depth that comes through disciple making. Seeing people grow in Christ-likeness, which is always inefficient, costly, frustrating, slow and steady kind of ministry. With broad and shallow, you get numbers on a Sunday morning in multiple places, but not enough spiritual transformation under the hood. We will plant more churches in the future, Lord willing. I'm convinced of that. It's part of our DNA. It's why we exist as a church. We were planted ourselves. But if we don't focus more intensely on making disciples, we will be like high-flying franchises that pop up restaurants or stores in every major market throughout the country, dozens at a time, only to implode one day, like uh, crumbs, cupcake bakeries, right? Everywhere, the fad, the phenomenon, next thing you know, closing every single store in the country. The fundamentals have to be solid. And in the church of Jesus Christ, that requires disciple-making. What does it involve? Secondly, the biblical model. A a book that's greatly influenced me is uh, called The Trellis and the Vine. And one chapter in particular, it's chapter 8, it's interestingly titled uh, The Sermon is Insufficient. Uh, You'd think pastors would ignore that chapter, you know. What? sermon's insufficient. But it, it... articulated very clearly a gut sense that I was unable to kind of put my finger on. And I thought, that's it. They, 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 they're discerning something I know is true. The, the chapter describes two typical models of church leadership. One is the pastor as clergyman, and the second is pastor as CEO. The first of, of those uh, treats the pastor as the professional who's hired to do the work of ministry. And it ends up feeding consumerism. People show up on Sunday mornings in order to receive from the professional. That's not always the case, but that's the tendency. That's the the direction that uh, these models tend to head in. And I would say, roughly, GRC was under this model until around 2007. Then there's the pastor as CEO. The second model assumes that the pastor can't do it all himself. The church is growing, and he needs to raise up other uh, staff members and ministry leaders to share in the work of ministry. And the church can easily become an organization with spiritual goals. There's often strong growth accompanying that. And there's almost always a broader range of programs and ministries. Worship very typically becomes even more defined by what I got out of it on Sunday mornings like a consumer rather than what I brought to it before the king as an offering. And I would say roughly that's been the pattern of GRC since 2007 through this day. We've, make, we've uh, taken some steps. We've made some attempts to um, grow beyond that, but we haven't yet succeeded. What's the third model? It's the biblical model. It's what we've aimed at. It's what we continue to pursue, and it involves you as the keys to disciple-making. This model is pastor as trainer and equipper. The best verse that I can point us to, the passage is from Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says, it was Christ who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Leadership categories. For what purpose did he give the church these leaders to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. You know, one of the unique aspects of my particular calling as pastor is to proclaim God's word from the pulpit. But the sermon is not something for you to consume or even rate in its excellence. The sermon should be um, Worship-oriented to lead you to bow the knee more fully along with me before the King Himself, Jesus, and then the the, the sermon should be a, a tool to equip you to minister as the people of God to do the work of service. This connects back. Directly to week number one. I said that fellowship needs to be far more than about bagels and coffee in the hallway. It needs to emphasize the speaking of God's truth, taking from the vertical fellowship that we have with God in Christ, and the speaking of that truth horizontally into each other's lives. Um, That is at the heart of discipleship. In this pastor as trainer, equipper model, the church begins to look much more like a team with an active captain and a coach equipping, sending them from the sidelines back onto the field in the scrum, if you will. So here's the sign of even more vibrant health at GRC. I'm not saying we're not a healthy church. I think we are. We're always aiming for greater health. Here's a sign, perhaps the sign, one of the most important signs of increasingly vibrant health. Not that I'm doing more. Not that I am increasingly the face of GRC but that you are being mobilized for ministry. You are taking ownership of this great commission and stepping out into the world armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are speaking truth into each other's lives to treat sin sickness that you yourself know you have just as fully as you look in the spiritual mirror. You're overflowing with gospel abundance in extending compassion towards the least and... um, and the message of Jesus Christ to the lost. And I, as I continue to do the same alongside you, I am increasingly busy training, equipping, mobilizing, deploying through formal and informal discipleship as I also continue to preach and lead and counsel. You are the key to discipleship. Here's the end of Ephesians uh, 4, at least that passage that I read. Um, Speaking the truth in love, that was week number one, wasn't it? Fellowship overflowing. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Rich biblical fellowship rooted in the speaking of God's truth in love into others' lives results in deep connection in close partnership, every supporting ligament, holding the body of Christ together, giving it strength and vitality. We're the ligaments. Each part does its work. Jesus alone is the head. That is the renewed biblical community that we are chasing after as we grow in grace. You know, I, I've, I've been so encouraged by this dynamic um, I am sharing this as a piece of the vision campaign. Those of you who are in growth groups and beta groups will be discussing this this week in your groups, but the vision campaign itself has already had the effect of mobilizing people who were formerly uninvolved. The vision campaign has increased ownership in GRC's future beyond the expected leadership circles, right, that, that, are, um, that you would hope are all in and um, owning the health of the church. And the vision campaign itself has already had the impact of, of um, giving people opportunities to use all kinds of various gifts for the benefit of Christ's church. You know how you go on a retreat and you have the spiritual high and then Monday morning life is just the same? Let's not let that happen in the church of Jesus Christ, if the vision campaign has been this occasion for the people of God to get off the sidelines onto the battlefield, if you will, let's continue that, whether or not we happen to be in this six-week special season because that is the body of Christ, biblically speaking. Um, More specifically, thirdly, and last, um, what are some elements of GRC's plan for discipleship? Um, I need to stir the pot a little. Um, a little hate mail to the pastor maybe is good for my humility. I don't know. Oh, it's not that, that level, but um, let me share this. Growth groups, as they typically function, are not effective enough at bringing about spiritual transformation. I'm not saying there's anything lacking in our growth group leaders, that they've done a bad job. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that growth groups have to go. I'm not saying that at all. I I see a need for growth groups always in the future of GRC. They have a role to play. But building a sense of warm community and even friendship and moving beyond that over time to a high level of commitment to one another in the group does not in and of themselves lead to gospel growth. It doesn't lead to healing from sin sickness. You you know what grieves me more than anything? When there's a crisis that comes to me or Ken or Josh or uh, Bob Dalberth, a counselor with whom we partner, and I realize that this person has been in a growth group for five, seven, ten years Nobody knows what's going on. I'm not saying it's anybody's fault. But the growth group, the way it's typically functioning, is not bringing healing to sin sickness. If the growth group has no clue what is a defining stretch of brokenness in this individual person's life. Growth groups don't bring spiritual transformation unless, here's the qualifier, another qualifier, unless... Followers of Christ are intentionally meeting together for the purpose of speaking Bible truth, healing, wholeness, bringing gospel shalom into the lives of other people for the purpose of bringing about repentance, because that's our sin sickness, and deeper faith in Christ. Growth groups do a good job. But growth groups need more intentional discipleship qualities. And growth groups need to not be content simply pulling off meetings twice a month, gathering a core group of people, having fun, having people want to join the group. Those are all good things. They're not the measure of making disciples, though. Let me give you some diagnostic questions that would apply whether or not you're in a growth group. Or beta group this season. Are you more deeply aware of the specific sin that afflicts your particular heart? Is its shape, are its tendencies far better known to you over time? And do others know that? Are you more committed than you have been in the past, let's say the last three years? Are you more committed to personal worship? The discipline of reading your Bible, praying, meditating on that truth, helping it, uh, uh, seeing it lead you to confession and repentance of your sin, getting rid of that sin sickness. Over the years, have your core relationships improved because of repentance and purer love, or are they the way they've always been, if not worse? Are you moving towards one another in your main relationships, in love and forgiveness and intimacy, or are you moving away? Do more people know your sin patterns, your weaknesses, your struggles, your fears, your personal challenges, or is most of your life unknown to many others, hidden in the dark because you feel ashamed to tell everybody to tell anybody that, frankly, you're just like them? Messed up, broken, pained in this fallen world. You know, we, we've been unabashed from Sunday number one. Yes, one of the goals of this vision campaign is funding for a new church home to help maximize our gospel impact here in Bergen County. But these first four weeks of foundation laying are not just the ramp to gain access to talking about facility. I'll I'll be frank with you. As I have needed to uh, make some presentations about the vision campaign, early on in my preparation, I really struggled. Um, I didn't feel comfortable being the salesman, pushing this angle, until I, I came to realize with full integrity, God is up to something here. We have a unique opportunity to steward um, these resources and these gospel ministry opportunities that God has put in front of us. And I no longer have any qualms, any hesitation. I can, with full conscience, tell you these spiritual dynamics are what we need to be about. This is what defines the church of Jesus Christ, regardless of whether a vision campaign happens to be wrapped around these goals. These are dynamics that need to be in place whether we are homeless and trying to find some public space in a park to gather for worship, or whether we have a really full fledged um, facility that enables our ministries to flourish, God's preparing us for this outpouring of His Spirit. And as we focus on Jesus' last words, among the other biblical principles that we've presented, we trust that God is going to respond with blessing. My personal conviction is that I, as I continue to preach and provide leadership, the very next priority on my list needs to increasingly be spending time, inefficient time, investing in a handful of you so that you can then, in the years to come, invest in a handful of others. This multiplying effect is more powerful and more biblical than mere reproduction. Jesus knew in giving us his last words that only this kind of multiplication could possibly ever fulfill the Great Commission. And I'm realizing more and more I need to say no to so many other things that are pressing for time. The the tyranny of the urgent is loud so that I can invest just like Jesus did, not in 12, because who could be a leader like Jesus, but perhaps in three or four or five? see this kind of impact. Let me set up the key question I'd leave you with. Discipleship, no doubt, requires commitment. Jesus called the uh, original 12, and some of them, we know, left their nets to follow Jesus. It was far more than a career change. It was an identity shift. Am I going to be defined by what my family has always been, or am I going to be defined by whatever this guy tells me is truth? And I don't know what he's up to yet, but he's the master. I'm going to follow him. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We know that Jesus was not calling people to die on the cross of Calvary as the ultimate punishment for their sins, but instead to trust in him. So what does it mean for us to take up our crosses? I think the, the verse itself explains it. Denying self. And I think dying to self is even more powerful and descriptive. Putting aside one's own will, truly dying to it in the interest of God's perfect will, that only comes through a painful process of having your specific sin exposed, the extent of your self-interest, your self-glory pursuit exposed, the self-status inflating efforts that... uh, so fill our lives, cut down to size and shown not to be something worth pursuing but in fact shown to be deadly, cancerous to our souls all so that Christ's power might be displayed in our weakness. I close with this comment. You heard me read it. I don't know if it struck you but in verse 17 there's a surprising phrase. Here's the setting. Jesus is risen He conquered death. His body is glorified such that some of the disciples don't even recognize his perfect body. And he's spending time with the disciples, ready to leave them, ascend back into heaven. And he says, meet me on this mountain. They do. They saw him. They worshipped him. But some doubted. (laughs) What? Some doubted. You know what? Be careful, lest you think that you would not have had any doubt. We would have. Why does Matthew, the gospel writer, include this? Well, the Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture to communicate exactly what God wanted us to know for all generations. That's the main answer. But this is not sanitized religion, the gospel of Jesus Christ presents. In our worship, in our following after Jesus, in our uh, hearing this call to discipleship, there are bumps in the road. There are obstacles in life. There are dead ends at which we're all tempted to think, what is God thinking? Is he listening anymore? Has he abandoned me? And somehow, Jesus' words, which immediately follow that statement on the part of Matthew, the gospel writer, somehow his words shake these 11 disciples out of their stupor, perhaps shake them out of their self-pity at thinking, you know, you're leaving. Where are you going? We're going to be alone. And he says, you have got a job to do. I am the king. I am commissioning you. This is your life's purpose. And when you doubt, remember that as all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, I commission you to do this work. And I will never leave you. I am with you always. Those last words of the Savior ring with the same authority as the words that created this universe. May the Lord give us ears to hear and a heart to follow after the master, however he calls us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, famous last words, let them marinate upon our hearts. Let us explore what it means to make disciples, and to be disciples. Lord, to to see that the exposure of our hearts is the most loving thing you you could possibly enable and to see that you provide forgiveness and acceptance. Therefore, what can man do to me? Let us live in that truth, Father, and pursue discipleship and um, speak truth into each other's lives and hear it when someone loves us enough to overflow with gospel abundance, even if it hurts. Lord, you are the master. We follow after you. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.